You are listening to Chthonia, the podcast of the Dark Feminine. Chthonia's logo was designed by J.R. Malpair. Background music is Phantasm by Kevin McLeod. Hello, and welcome to Chthonia. I'm your host, Breach Burke. Um, it's a little strange for me today, because this is the first time I'm actually recording a new podcast since April. i actually been doing them in groups at this point. And one of the things I've been doing is, you know, uh, like I did all the Mahavidyas, I tried to finish up that set together. And probably over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to try to finish up this next set, um, just to kind of give uh, regular listeners an idea of what's coming up for this year. Uh, we're about to start the series on the Matrikas. Now, there's, well, we'll talk, I'll explain what that is in, in a moment. Um, but I think what we're looking at is, uh, you know, we're probably the Matrika series is going to take us through mid-October, roughly. Um, I think I might do another podcast on the Morrigan after that. Uh, the last one I did was last year, uh, last October with April Shaley. Uh, that one, the the sound was a little weird on that one. Um, I know April was um, recording from a very strange uh, location, so there wasn't a, you know, she didn't have a normal microphone. Um, so what we're going to do is, uh, so I'm going to do that, and then I'll probably um, finish out the year with some Egyptian goddesses, um, you know, of uh, some, some Egyptian dark mothers who we will talk about. So that's what the rest of 2020 is probably going to look like for this podcast. In the meantime, we are going to get into the subject of matrikas. And the first matrika we are going to talk about today is Chamunda, Okay. Um, now, first of all, you're probably asking, well, maybe you're not, if you're, if you're depending on how familiar you are. Um, what is what is a matrika? Okay. Now the matrika matrika is actually a word that means mother. Okay, and often there's a reference to the septa matrika or seven uh, matrikas or seven mothers. Um, there's also a reference to the asta matrikas, which is the eight mothers. And in that one, uh, narasimhi is also included as one of the um, uh, the you know, one of the one one of these particular um, quote unquote mother um, images or mother deities, and the um, so you know again depending on which um, text you're reading, which which epic, which uh, Purana, um, you'll you'll see certain different varieties. And matrikas, um, okay, but they literally are referred to as they're 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 these very they're referred to as mothers, but they're actually extremely fearsome in their aspect. Um, there's, uh, I'm just, you know, one of the, um, discussions of them suggests that they were emblematic, as they say, of childhood pestilence, fever, starvation, and disease, and propitiated in order to avoid these ills. Now, at a more fundamental level, a matrika is a, is a shakti. It, it is a manifestation, um, of, uh, the Devi, of the, um, you know, the supreme shakti, of the, of the power of the feminine power of the universe. And uh, these, these, and when they're often seen now, one the, the story that we're probably most familiar with with the Matrikas, um, it's in you know the, the Kalika, you know Puranas, and also in the Devi Mahatmayam. There's a lot of overlap between those two, and I'm actually going to read um, about Chamunda from uh, the, um, the the Durga Saptashadi or the Chandipat, which is which is from the Devi Mahatmayam. Um, I have there's a there's a chapter in there. Actually, it's chapter seven, interestingly. Uh, that that talks about uh, Chamunda and what the what the story is that most people associate with Chamunda. 
Um, and what we see these, these matrikas doing is they often seem to have a protective function. Remember, we had my earlier podcasts, we had talked about the idea of the terrible mother. We talk about the devouring terrible mother, which definitely applies here, um, but also as the mother, you know, who in that role is protective. One thing about, I think, these, these really scary-looking goddesses is that, you know, especially if you're a female, you have this idea that, um, you know, these these goddesses you know protect you from stuff i mean they, they're not they're not fooling around and i can tell you that chamunda in particular is a goddess that you um that you don't fool around with um now uh well you know let me let me sort of make a um make a start here i want to i want to talk a little bit about her specifically um I do also want to say, though, that the Matrikas are also associated with a group of goddesses called Yoginis. Now, the Yoginis are sometimes considered to be the daughters of the Matrikas, so it's weird that you could have Matrikas and Yoginis that are the same, but they also may just be other manifestations of, of the Devi, like another another version of the Shakti, because you, you, have, you have, okay, if we go with the system that says that there's eight Matrikas, then generally with those is multiplied by eight, you have 64 Yoginis, okay? So it's like each of them, it's like, you know, for each one of them, there's, there's like seven more. So that which, you know, which makes a total of eight um, for each, and then that's 64. And that, that tends to be associated with the yoginis um, who are, um, reside in the Sri Chakra, or the, uh, the, um, the home of the Devi, as it were. So we, so the yoginis, so the yoginis are another, I mean, you know, the term yogini is used for other things too. It can be used for a female uh, tantric practitioner. It can be used for uh, a female yogi. Um, you know, the term is used in a lot of different uh, cases and in a lot of different ways. But, um, but there's, but a lot of times, now, now the other thing too, now if you remember from our discussion of the Mahavidyas, um, there's the independence factor when it comes to the matrikas. Um, now, some of the, some of the matrikas are considered to be the shakti or power of male divinities, okay? So there's, um, you know, for example, Komari, uh, who we'll talk about in the next podcast, is, um, you know, considered to be the shakti of uh, Komara or Skanda, who is the god of war, okay? Um, there's, there's, you know, the, the matrikas who are considered to be the shaktis of like Vishnu or, um, you know, uh, Brahma or some of these other deities. Um, now, the one we're talking about the today, Chamunda, is in fact the only matrika who is the shakti of the great goddess Devi herself. She has no male counterpart whatsoever. The other thing worth knowing about Chamunda is that Chamunda is, um, well, okay, like her and like a lot of the matrikas, they're very, very old. Okay, they they have a tradition in the Vedas. They get picked up by the Brahman uh, Brahmanic traditions, okay, um, and the sort of the sort of proper Hindu worship um, as we know it. Um, however, all of them seem to have origins that are much much older. Uh, whether it be in certain local deities, you kind of see this in Greece too. When you talk about um, Mount Olympus and you talk about uh, like Zeus, for example, and um, Zeus and Artemis and Hera and uh, Aphrodite, all these goddesses, they they sort of end up taking on attributes of, um, you know, other local deities that are there. Um, you know, they might be referred to as, you know, um, like, for example, Chthonic deities might be known as Zeus Chthonios or something like that. 
Um, there, there's the the quote unquote main state deities, if you will, um, end up kind of subsuming the local deities that are there. And I believe a lot of this has happened with the Matrikas. Now, Chamunda is interesting because she's kind of retained her identity. And um, she is very <laughs> demonic appearing in nature, certainly. Um, and I'm also thinking of um, some of these other, like when we talk about uh, Aindri or Indrani, the, you know, the queen of the gods, you know, she's like the Hera of the, um, of the, of the Hindu pantheon. Um, she is actually the daughter of a demon as well. So you have these matrikas that are these shakta, but they're not, they're not these kind of pure, um, you know, we, again, we, you know, to, this is not new to anybody who's familiar with this podcast, but one of the things we want to get away with, wait, not away with, away from, is the whole good versus evil theme. And, you know, these, they're not, they're not really anything. They're, they're powers that can be protective and that can be helpful and that can vanquish demons, but they can also be somewhat demonic in and of themselves. And again, the term demonic in Hinduism means something rather different. This is kind of why they have a tantric association, because tantra, you know, when you, if you say tantra is about the demonic, I mean, that immediately to a Westerner, the narrative there, it signals something very, very, you know, bad or evil or something like that. That's not what we mean by demonic. Demonic tends to have to do with um, that which is ashuric, or doing with the ashuras. Um, so it has to do with things that are... How can I put it? it, it having to do with the goals that are perhaps more material than spiritual. Um, and again, you want to avoid making a distinction between material is bad and spiritual is good. That happens a lot too. If anything, Tantra teaches us that both are necessary, that, you know, to live a balanced life, you should participate in and enjoy the world. And, you know, there's a time and place also for spiritual aspiration. So, you know, it's not a matter of choosing one over the other. Um, we may choose our behaviors, uh, what, what constitutes right action or right behavior in a particular situation, but there's not, um, you know, there's not a, um, you know, there's not this rigid line between what's sinful and what's not sinful. There, again, there, there, there are certain traditions that, that um, focus heavily on purity or on purifications or getting rid of pollutions. But what we have here is we have goddesses that, that function in a very polluted kind of a fac uh, fashion, just the way that uh, many of the Mahavidyas do. So, um, so you're going to see this same element with the Matrikas. But the Matrikas are definitely... Um, they are definitely more the essence of these of, of the divine. And as we see, the essence of the divine is not necessarily, quote-unquote, all good. In fact, each matrika is associated with a vice, okay? And that vice can depend. It can be wrath, it can be anger, it can be greed, it can be jealousy, um, you know. And, and we'll talk about each individual one when we go into uh, each individual matrika. But, you know, just as they embody those, um, those qualities or their manifestations of those qualities, they can also help the devotee to, um, you know, learn about those qualities in themselves. This is also, again, just, just kind of drawing parallels with the West here. If people who practice a Goetic practice, um, and when I say uh, Goetia, when I talk about the, the West, I realize that there are, there, that means more than one thing also. There's certainly the practice of using the grimoires, and, you know, there's some overlap here, but there's, there's the later grimoires that come out, like, throughout the, the Middle Ages and beyond. 
and then there's the uh, the tradition that um, the archaic Goetia, which has to do with sort of practices that were done um, in ancient Greece, kind of necromantic practices. But either way, Goetia, when, when one works with demons, okay, when one does that, um, takes the Goetia and says, okay, I'm going to, you know, draw, you know, circle on the floor and I'm going to put a sigil in and I'm going to, you know, um, call up this demon and I'm going to ask it to do something. I'm going to make a, you know, ask it to do something for me. Um, when that happens, um, you, it's, it's, it's kind of like, um, you know, it's, it's a very, okay. What, what tends to happen is the thing, um, I think Lon Milo Duquette expressed this the best in his book, Low Magic. And also I had, I had gone to a workshop that he did many years ago, um, on Goetia. And I thought that one of the things he said that was very good was he had said, you know, um, when you, when you try to summon a spirit like that for something, um, it generally, <clears throat> excuse me, generally shows something that you're lacking. So, for example, in the case, in the example he gives of himself, he will say that, um, okay, that, that was a time when, um, I don't know, he was a musician, he was having trouble making money, he had a family, he had his wife and his son, he couldn't support them, so he felt like, you know, he wasn't doing his job as the father of the family and so forth. So he ended up looking to a demon to help him that uh, had to do with dignity, okay? You know, restoring his dignity. And so he says, but, you know, but really for him to say, uh, I need a demon to restore my dignity implies that I don't feel I have dignity. Just like he said, if somebody wants to perform, say, a love spell or invoke something to say, you know, you know, I want Susie next door to fall in love with me, as he put it, uh, then that means I don't think I'm the kind of person that Susie would, would be interested in. So it's that kind of a thing. That they, well, my point is that these, they, you know, oftentimes they can help point out areas that are in shadow for you or areas where you lack, okay? Um, so, uh, so, yes, yeah, so if you appeal to a, um, a matrika, who has to do with jealousy, for example, then, um, you know, then that could mean that jealousy is a problem for you, that you're very possessive, um, that you're, um, you know, that, that you um, can't let go of certain things or you have attachments to certain things. So just as a way of example. Okay, so this is a very long preface, but I feel like it's, it's important to explain what the matrikas are and their role as we're going to get into this series talking about them individually. So now we are going to move on to Chamunda. Now Chamunda is um, okay. Let me let me describe how she uh, how she appears here. Um, and okay, so I'll, I'll read a little bit of a description of her. The black or red colored Chamunda is described as wearing a garland of severed heads or skulls. Uh, she's described as having four, eight, ten, or twelve arms, holding a damaru or drum a trishula, a trident, a sword, a snake, a skull mace, a thunderbolt, a severed head, and a panapatra, which is um, a drinking vessel or a wine cup, or a skull, or sometimes she has a skull cup filled with blood, standing on the corpse of a man, or seated on a defeated demon or corpse. Okay, so this is how she is portrayed. Uh, Chamunda is depicted adorned by ornaments of bones, skulls, and serpents. She also wears a Jano Pavita, a sacred thread worn mostly by Hindu priests, of skulls. She wears a Jata Mukuta, that is a headdress formed of piled, matted hair tied with uh, snakes or skull ornaments. Sometimes a crescent moon is seen on her head. Her eye sockets are described as burning the world with flames. She is accompanied by evil spirits. 
She is also shown to be surrounded by skeletons or ghosts and beasts like jackals, who are shown eating the flesh of the corpse which the goddess sits or stands on. The jackals and her fearsome companions are sometimes depicted as drinking blood from the skull cup or blood dripping from the severed head, implying that Chamunda drinks the blood of the defeated enemies. The quality of drinking blood is usually a characteristic of all Matrikas, and Chamunda in particular. At times, she is depicted seated on an owl, her vahana, mount or vehicle. Her banner figures an eagle. Okay. So, we, as we can see, she is a very um, scary-looking goddess. Um, in, it's interesting that there's not a whole lot of artwork of Chamunda that I have seen. Or the artwork I've seen of her has made her a little bit more like Kali. And sometimes she is actually conflated with Kali, just like you see that with Tara and with some of these others. And to a certain degree, yes, there's definitely an overlap in qualities and energy uh, between these these goddesses. Um, now, the main story uh, surrounding Chamunda, as I said, comes from the Chandipat, um, also known as the Durga Saptashadi, 700 verses in praise of Durga which is a, is a piece that comes from a larger um, epic known as the Devi Mahatmayam, okay? And I did do a podcast on the Devi Mahatmayam uh, a few months ago now, actually. So let's start. Um, I actually have my copy of the Chandipat here, and it's the one translated by um, uh, Swami Yananda Saraswati. And so I'm going to read the translation. Now, in this translation, Chamunda is referred to as the, um, let me find how they say it here, um, the remover of darkness. Okay, so that is how she is translated here. So when you hear remover of darkness, we are talking about Chamunda. Okay. And the chapter starts with a meditation upon Matangi, okay, as we know who is one of the um, Mahavidyas associated with pollution. So uh, interesting that that's the introduction to the Chamunda chapter. Okay, so um, here we have, we have this battle. This is, this is the section, and I've, I've, again, I've talked about this before, so I don't want to rerun through the whole story. But um, this is when the, um, the Ashuras, the great ego, um, and all of the bad qualities, as you could say, um, have, taken over, have taken over the world, okay? They, they've taken over. And, um, you know, so the gods, of course, appeal to the Devi to destroy them. Um, I'm going to make one quick side note here that's important. One of the things I have noticed in reading a lot of stories about Ashuras, or demons, who practice austerities and certain purifications and spiritual practices in order to achieve a boon, see, their, their, their purpose is to achieve something, okay? It's not mere, it's not simply, it's not to achieve necessarily knowledge or, you know, what we might think of in our terms as improvement. They're, they're generally trying to get something. They're trying to get power for themselves of some kind. And when they do this, um, I've noticed that when they request a boon uh, from Brahma or from Shiva or from any of these gods for what they do, um, sometimes they try to request immortality and they're told, no, you, can, uh, you can't have that. You can have something else. You can't have that. Um, often what they want, and this isn't true in all cases, but it's true in a lot of cases, probably most of them, is that they want the, they want to be invincible. They want it so that no man can kill them. Okay. Now this is important that no man can kill them. Okay. Which means that uh, a woman could kill them. Okay, so this is, if you wonder why the Devi is frequently called up, a lot of times you have demons that are invincible to any kind of male uh, deity or, or whoever um, that, that can't, they, they can't, they can't be vanquished. 
it requires a woman. And there's kind of, there's, um, there's kind of an almost patriarchal arrogance there. It's just kind of like, yeah, well, I don't need to mention women because what's a woman going to do? I mean, she's not going to defeat me, right? Well, as they find, that's, uh, you know, because women, you know, are, are always portrayed as like always sweetness and light and, you know, and, uh, you know, they're, they're not going to do anything. Well, as we find out, that's not true. So, okay. So I'm going to read this translation of this chapter because this has to do directly with where we get sort of the Brahmin idea of Chamunda. Okay. In adherence to the command of self-conceit, passion and anger set forth with four divisions of their army of thoughts, well adorned with weapons and armor. On a high peak in the Golden Mountains, they saw the goddess sitting on her lion, smiling with delight. Seeing her, the thoughts made ready to capture her. Some took up their bows, some raised their swords, some collected around the goddess to begin the fight. Then the mother of the universe became very angry with those attackers, and her face turned dark with rage. The eyebrows were scowling, and from her frowning forehead appeared the remover of darkness, with a terribly frightening face, who was holding a sword and a net in her hands. She wore a leopard-skin garment and a garland of human skulls. Her flesh had withered, and she appeared as a skeleton of bones and very fierce. She displayed fantastic missiles of consciousness. Her mouth was immense, and she brandished her tongue as a sword that caused great fear. Her eyes were penetrating and somewhat red, and her fearful roar was humming in all directions. The remover of darkness killed many great thoughts, and after destroying an army of thoughts in great haste, she began to eat them all. She picked up elephants with one hand and put them into her mouth together with their protectors, the driver with his goad, soldiers, and bells. In the same way, she took warriors, horses, chariots with their charioteers, the entire cavalry of thoughts. She put them into her mouth and hideously began to chew. Some thoughts she grabbed by the hair, others she crushed at the throat, still others she trampled with her feet, and others she killed by a stroke to the breast. She picked up the great weapons of that army in her mouth, and in fearful anger she ground them with her teeth. She trampled that entire army of mighty and wicked thoughts and ate them all, and others she fiercely beat. Some fell by the blade of her sword, some were beaten by the missiles of consciousness, and some were crushed to death by her formidable teeth. In this way, that entire mighty army of thoughts was killed in a moment. Seeing this, passion attacked that excessively fearful remover of darkness. Also, that great thought, anger, raised his extremely terrible arrows and hurled a thousand discuses against the fearful-eyed goddess. Those discuses entered her mouth, shone as a halo of light of the sun absorbed in many clouds. Then with a fearful roar, the remover of darkness laughed furiously, her teeth radiantly gleaming in her fierce mouth. Then the goddess, mounting upon the lion, seized passion by the hair, and with a broadsword she cut off his head. Seeing the death of passion, anger attacked the goddess. Then in terrible anger, stabbing him with her sword, she laid him to rest on the ground. The remaining army, seeing the death of the terribly valiant passion and anger, were overcome with fear and ran away. Thereafter, the remover of darkness took the heads of passion and anger in her hands and brought them to she who tears apart thought, and spoke to her with a great laugh. I present to you two great beasts, passion and anger. Now in the war of sacrifice, you yourself will kill self-conceit and self-depreciation. Uh, then the Rishi says, seeing the heads of the two great thoughts, passion and anger, Chonda and Munda, uh, brought there the goddess of welfare, she who tears apart thought, said in sweet words to the remover of darkness, since you have brought me the heads of passion and anger, henceforth you will be known in all the worlds as the slayer of passion and anger, Chamundeti. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> okay. So 
Um, so this is the traditional idea. Now, first she kind of starts out as almost a Kali-like manifestation. She's this emaciated skeletal figure wearing a tiger skin. Tiger skin, as we know, represents the um, ability to control desire. So as, as ferocious as she is and as enraged as she is, it's a sign that she really does have it under control in spite of how things might appear. But um, she almost has almost like a function of a black hole. She just swallows everything up. And um, there's, there's, there is a similarity to Kali there, because if Kali is the devourer of time, you know, it's the idea, um, or we also think back to Greek mythology with Kronos, you know, swallowing his children. Um, there's this idea of the devourer, and it only seems to be a deity associated with time that is a devourer. Um, but here we see her, um, <clears throat> excuse me, having to do with passion and anger, okay? She is devouring... Um, you know, the, the deities having to do with, um, you know, the way in which we um, act hastily or we, we act for motives. It's when our, you know, emotions are important, but when our emotions get out of control, um, you know, it, you know, like any of the, the, um, the Ashuras, I mean, the Ashuras by themselves, um, they represent just qualities. You know, we don't want to say that they're good or evil, um, but what frequently happens is those qualities get out of control. So when we have passion and anger, we have, you know, excessive force. We have, uh, you know, actions not only that are irrational, but are just, um, how can I put it? They're, they're not just irrational actions. They're, um, you know, they're, they're just, um, they're, they're, they're certainly not the appropriate actions for those situations. They could be overreactions. Um, so here we have, so here, here we see the role of these kinds of terrible, ferocious mothers as those that, um, that, that, that kind of still the passions, you know, that's kind of like, okay, let's, 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 you know, slap you in the head a few times and get you back in control of yourself. You know, <laughs> the, the, the deities that shake you and go, all right, get, get a grip, you know, here's the reality, you know, this is it, you have to deal with this. Um, and it can kind of be in your face like that. So, um. You know, so, okay, so we, we see this role of Chamunda, and when she's gen generally um, propitiated in temples or brought up in prayers or in bhajans or things like that, um, she's generally brought up in the same breath as Kali, and she is also considered to be, you know, this, this kind of, um, this, this demon slayer, this demon devourer. Okay, now, having said that, um... <clears throat> I'm, I'm looking at the um, book, I, and I did a review of this book on the Chthonia blog, so do check that out. Um, this is from Theon Press. It's a book called Ferocious that actually gets into all of the aspects of the matrikas. Okay, and it actually, even though it's, it's dealing with the septa matrikas, it does deal with all eight. Um, Narasimi is put in the, in the appendix there. And um, one of the things that they note is they said, Chamunda looks demonic, and she is demonic. Okay. One thing you have to think about is when you have a deity that continually drinks the blood of demons, that the idea is that that drinking of blood gives you the qualities of that which you are drinking, okay? Which, you know, that which held the blood, okay? That's more, you know, what, the way I want to say that. So she is, um, you know, so she, you know, so, you know, she, she doesn't, but the, the kind of energy that she has can be very, very easily offended, um, is very volatile, and you don't want to approach that energy, um, you know, frivolously or flippantly. Um, people who are magicians who maybe appeal to the matrikas for um, assistance, 
Um, now, Chamunda is one of those that you, you don't, if you're angry at somebody, you don't want to send Chamunda after them unless, unless you've got somebody who's really like, you know, you know, murdering your family and trying to destroy your house. I mean, I, I would not, I mean, unless it's an extreme case, I would not, have, I, you know, if, if you happen to practice those uh, kind of things, I would not recommend um, invoking Chamunda unless you're really, really serious. Because, it, you know, because Chamunda, if, if, if you offend her, that, that can backfire on you too. Um, but, you know, she's not just likely to, you know, bring the person you don't like bad luck. She's probably going to burn their freaking house down. So it's very, it's a very, very powerful Shakti energy. And, and one of the things that's made very clear about Chamunda is that in spite of the story I just read to you, her really, she's very clearly pre-Vedic. She is very clearly a very, very old, old deity that has been around for a long time. And what's interesting is that the, the sort of um, egalitarian nature of her, in the same way that you see with gods like, say, Bacchus or Dionysus, where the very powerful and the very wealthy, and in this case the very high caste, worship Chamunda, but also the very lowest, the untouchables, um, and the people or classes of thugs and criminals and, um, you know, the poverty-stricken, they also appeal to Chamunda. Chamunda is a very, very democratic goddess. I mean, she is not... Um, just for one. And as they imply in the ferocious book, they said, you know, she probably would not be around this long or propitiated if the, the rights to her did not actually yield some kind of result. So she definitely represents an extremely powerful natural force, um, a force in the universe um, that, um, that exists. And yes, they're only kind of brought into these stories. Um, and, and the idea is that you are to bring Chamunda in and, and make her a demon slayer, it's a way of kind of um, taking that very, very raw and um, powerful and dangerous energy and kind of directing it towards, um, you know, a, a different purpose or a different, um, a different idea. Um, now, the other story about um, uh, that I'm not going to read to you right now, but I'll just tell you about within the same um, Durga Saptashati uh, about Chamunda is that she drinks the blood of Rakta Bija or Rakta Vera. Now, Rakta Bija is a demon who is like a demon of addiction. Uh, the idea is that his boon is that when you kill him, another one of him fully, fully grown and fully armored appears. Okay. So, um, so Rakta Bija is like, this literally means, the, the name literally means seed of desire. Okay. And the idea is, you know, it's uh, <clears throat> the more you try to get rid of something, the more it, the more it multiplies, you know? So if you think the way that they often describe it is like, okay, if you're, you're on a diet and you know, you're somebody, I don't know, trying to diet by like living on like lettuce and water or something. Um, and then eventually your, your desire just wells up and you go in and eat everything in sight in the refrigerator, you know, just, just as an example, you know, it's like when you're trying to abstain or try to get away from it, it just makes you want it that much more. Okay. That, that would be the psychological kind of equivalent of that. And obviously, there's a whole spectrum of, of responses there. But, um, so what ends up happening is Chamunda, you know, and, and again, sometimes again, conflated with Kali here, she runs her tongue along the ground. And when she does so, she drinks up the blood of Rakta Bija so that he cannot replicate. So again, so here's a goddess who frees you um, from delusion, who frees you from passion, anger, and also from addiction. Okay, so she's, so, so you have this very, very powerful and potent energy. At the same time, um, again, she's frequently um, invoked uh, against enemies and in sort of um, 
these kinds of what you might call black magical contexts. So she, to me, is kind of, you know, she's sometimes considered the first of the matricas. And you can see that, you know, and I don't know whether that has to do with age, whether that just has to do with um, her role. Um, but she is definitely, um, and, and like Dumavati, by the way, she's also associated with old age and disease at times. So again, these are these are forces that are that are very fearsome, but um, but they but they are here. They are natural forces. Now, um, <clears throat> just a little bit more background here. Uh, Ramakrishna Gopal uh, Bandakar, which I, I think I took this from a um, possibly I took it from a source on the web, um, possibly Wikipedia. Um, but I think, I don't think it was actually, <clears throat> it was probably another one of the Vedic sites that I, that I found. There's so many of them out there, I, I start to lose track of what they are. But he says that Chamunda was originally a tribal goddess worshipped by the tribals of the Vindhya mountains in central India. These tribes were known to offer goddesses animals as well as human sacrifices along with ritual offerings of liquor. Um, and that's the other thing too about the Matrikas, by the way, is that they all like blood. Um, you know, you don't have to show devotion in that way, but um, if you are actually going to have that kind of relationship, they do like, they do like blood, um, generally yours. Um, so just um, not, that, not that that's required if you want to, um, you know, recite these goddesses' mantras or, or show a devotion to them. You don't have to do that. But if you're forming, my guru had only said, um, or at least her swamis had only said, you know, you don't want to do that. At least is what they're telling us. They said, you know, because then unless you're, you're creating a very, very, um, specific kind of a bond when you use blood. So um, unless you're prepared to continually maintain that bond, um, be careful about doing that. Okay. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, and I, you know, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, it's, it's, I'm not, I, I wouldn't tell anybody what to do or not to do, but all I'm saying is there are people who balk at the idea of that. It's not, I'm saying it's not necessary um, for just, you know, straight up, you know, certain kinds of devotions. So, um, anyway. Okay, these methods of worship were, um, oh, and they also had ritual offerings of liquor, okay? These methods of worship were retained in tantric worship of Chamunda after assimilation into Hinduism. He proposes the fierce nature of this goddess is due to her associated with Vedic Ruja, identified as Shiva in modern Hinduism, identified with the fire god Agni at times. Um, Wangu also backs the theory of the tribal origins of the goddess. Apart from her popular names like Chamunda, Chamundi, Chamundeshwari, uh, Chartika, and Raktakali, she is also known as Rudira Kali, Chandakali, Rudira, Rudira Mala Devi, Rudirama, Rudireshwari, uh, Rakteshwari, Rakta Chamundi, Virkali, Porkali, uh, Galurika, Ugrachandi, uh, Kal Kalari Devi, and Ati Bayakali regionally in India and Nepal. She is popularly worshipped as a goddess of war and patron of martial arts, um, like Kalari Payatu. Okay. So, um, so she, yeah, so she definitely has these very um, uh, intense associations, shall we say. And, uh, and as they say, she is obviously originally a tribal deity that is that important enough to make her way into Hinduism. Now, um, some of the aspects I have here in my notes, um, that she's a demon slayer and a demoness. Um, like some of the darker Mahavidyas and the Santa Muerte in the Mexican tradition, she tends to be worshipped by outcasts and criminals with nothing to lose. Uh, frequently invoked in curse magic, black magic, um, and as I've said, be careful about invoking her for such things. Um, 
Now, personally, okay, I'm just going to make a personal side note in my own sort of relationship with Chamunda because she is one of the deities that um, I favor very heavily. And, and it's interesting because I look at the images of her, which are meant to absolutely scare the pants off of you, but they actually don't scare me at all. I, I'm actually just, there's something very sublimely beautiful about looking at Chamunda. There's, there's like a, there's a tremendous beauty, at least in my eyes, she's a tremendously beautiful goddess. I mean, you know, just because she's not sitting there, you know, with a smile and looking nice or, or whatever, there's just something about her that to me that is just, um... I don't know. If I meditate on Chamunda, there's just kind of like a sublime beauty there. And I feel like when I'm, you know, you know, I, I, I have a lot of, if those of you who are astrologically inclined, I have a tremendous amount of Mars energy in my chart. So um, when, I, when, I'm, when I'm feeling that energy at very high peaks at different times, um, I find Chamunda is kind of a great um, source of, um, I, I don't know if the comfort's the right word, but I find... Um, you know, uh, I find her to be kind of a, a, a balancing or a helpful force, shall we say. Okay. Um, now, just, I was also looking at some of her other aspects, okay? She's got an emaciated body, okay? Which, again, um, and again, it's never, she's swallowing all these things, but she never stops being emaciated, okay? It just, she just continually and continually, it's like her, her body is infinite, Okay. And it may, the emaciation may represent old age and disease and death, um, you know, and, you know, so, so again, as I said earlier, she's a kind of black hole. She's like a void beyond time and space that eventually devours everything. Makes me kind of wonder now that I'm, I'm thinking about this, um, and reflecting on it, whether or not, you know, there's a lot in the, um, in the, the Vedas and other things that, that kind of reflect actual things that we've learned about the universe and about how it works particularly with regard to things like, you know, maybe multiverses or, um, you know, cer other certain quantum things. Um, I'm not, that, that, maybe at some point that could be a separate podcast. Right now I'm not, um, you know, I'm not prepared to you give you all the quotations there. But there's a lot in, especially the early Vedic mythology, that, that, that seems to accurately reflect um, what, what science has discovered about the universe. Uh, Joseph Campbell has a lecture series on that where he says that's one of the reasons that people seem to be drawn to Eastern belief is because it actually jives with the, the factual knowledge that we've gotten to some degree. Not that myths have to be about facts, and that's not their intention necessarily, but it, it's easier to, um, you know, um, adopt a narrative if, if we find that it matches what we've actually learned, Okay. You know, when we have a story and, and it's uh, it's very clearly not the, you know, like that's the problem with the Adam and Eve story. The world was clearly not created five, six thousand years ago. So it's like, okay, if you're going to try to look at it from that angle, now does the Adam and Eve story have a, a value and, and have a meaning that doesn't have anything to do with that? Yes. But it's like when people who try to try to reconcile it in that way, it doesn't really work. Okay. So you'll find that. Um, so I don't know. So now in reflection, I'm thinking, okay, is Chamunda kind of like the representation of the black hole? I mean, our galaxy is supposed to have a black hole at the center. I mean, if that's the, if she's the if they're at the center of the universe, hmm, that's that's interesting. Is the, is that devouring force at the center of the universe? So um, I don't know. I mean, hasn't been studied by scholarship, but interesting thing to think about. Um, and okay, um, let's see. I mentioned her tiger skin, her control over desires, uh, drinking blood. Um, again, those are considered polluted in traditional Hinduism, just like eating meat. Um, but she can continue, again, to take in these things. And we say she's not affected, but um, 
I mean, if she's already of that essence, then then no, it's not going to have. It's not going to change her from being a, a you know a, a beneficent goddess to to being a nasty one or something like that. I mean, she's she's already got kind of the. Um, I would say the dual aspects, because even though she, she is very, um, sort of has these proclivities that are very, um, frightening, um, I, I would, I still would not portray her as sort of this entirely evil goddess. Um, I, I don't, I don't feel that, um, you know, I, I don't feel that it's, it's, it's that, that simple of a distinction. Um, yeah, she has, again, like a lot of the Mahavidyas did, um, and especially the ones who were closer to Kali in nature, she is associated with graveyards and uh, cremation grounds. Um, and there's also this sort of liminal aspect to her because she's, she, you know, she appeals to Brahmins and to lower castes alike, okay? And she's in Orthodox Hinduism and she's in Tantra, okay? So that's, that's a very powerful and pervasive energy. I mean, you don't, you don't always see that. A lot of times, especially the Matrikas, a lot of times they're worshipped as a group and not necessarily as individual deities, but Chamunda has her own temples, okay? And, um, you know, she has, she has, she has, you know, worn the test of time. She has been around a, a very, very long time. Um, and again, there's her independence. Um, she acts, you know, even though she may be acting in, in concert with other, um, other deities, she basically is, is very much in her own right. She has no, um, male attachments whatsoever. Okay. Um, and, and again, this is remarkable for someone who is considered to be in t associated almost entirely with inauspicious things. Um, now I have another note here, um, about the, um, uh, uh, I don't know if I'm saying that right, uh, and, and the Jain, Jainist community often worship Chamunda as a Kula Devi or family deity, um, and, uh, also in, you know, different, um, uh, the Chapa dynasty worshipped her as a Kula Devi, the Kuch, uh, Gujar, um, Kshatriyas, it's the KS that's driving me, that's throwing me here, worship her as a Kula Devi, and she has temples in, uh, Sinugra and, uh, Chandia, okay, and a lot of this is in South India, um, so she, she definitely tends to have a very, very strong presence in South India, um, I had another, um, note about her, so let me just see, um, what I wanted to say here, um, Let's see. I saw something. Okay. I think I just had another note here. Um, this is from Ferocious. I remember I had a certain pages that had stood out to me. And this is on the idea of, um, of, of the ancient nature of Chamunda. It says, this theme of a deity that embodies dark or negative tendencies applies to Chamunda, but also applies to Matrika, a group of goddesses which she belongs. It is also important to note that here that Chamunda and Orkali began as marginalized deities that gradually came to take more and more power and social prestige over the centuries. This text is also interesting to our study because it explores how different deities with similar attributes come to be associated and eventually understood to be non-different or the same entity altogether. Okay. Um, additionally, we know with certainty that the origins of Chamunda are very early. In terms of material evidence, Chamunda's cult is attested to by an inscription found at Gangadhar in Rajasthan. This inscription provides evidence that A. Chamunda was already considered an established deity by the 5th century. B. Chamunda was connected by them with the Matrikas and the Dakinis, which are another type of yogini-type energy. They're calling them sinister female energies, but yes, Dakinis tend to be associated with these tantric goddesses. 
and see Chamunda was equated with tantric and esoteric practices and was able to fulfill all wishes. Thus, we have a deity that is clearly associated with corpses and dakinis, both of which are polluting and polluted, and yet is also a source of wish fulfillment and magical power. The people were willing to risk approaching such an entity as evidence that Chamunda was indeed able to fulfill the wishes of her devotees, as they were clearly less threatening, uh, less th clearly less threatening goddesses to approach. Okay, um, so uh, it's rather rather interesting. Um, uh, discussion here of Chamunda. So I think that's that's most of what I want to say uh, about Chamunda for today. Um, I have no idea how long I've got. I never do. When I when I start doing these podcasts, they just kind of, everything just kind of goes. And I always look at what I have and I go, oh, do I really have enough material to talk about this person? And then it turns out I've been talking for like an hour and a half or something. So, uh, so I'll, I'll probably... Um, stop here because I think I've actually covered all of the aspects that I think are... Uh, important with regard to Chamunda. Um, she, again, she's, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I, I don't say a lot of these things to steer people away from her who have an interest in this kind of a deity because I do feel like, and again, this could just be, as I'd said early on in my intros to uh, Tantra, uh, those podcasts, is that I tend to have, I tend to already feel a connection with these deities. Um, so it's, it's not, um, I don't necessarily think, you know, I, I'm not sure that she's for everybody, I guess is the what I'm saying. And um, I would be, I wouldn't be frivolous about how I approach her, but by the same token, um, you know, when you, if you feel a strong devotion to her, I mean, to me, uh, she is, um, you know, again, it's kind of like what's been said about, about Kali, you know, this, this, this something that, that seems to be so apparently awful um, actually represents a kind of sublime reality and reminds us of the place of evil in the world. Now, that's kind of a hard thing to talk about right now because everything is up in upheaval. Everything is so upset and, you know, every, everybody's in chaos in the world. And, you know, we are wondering, you know, when these kinds of things are finally going to uh, settle down or come to an end, you know. Um, but the upheavals, of course, are necessary if you want to make substantive changes. And, um, and, and it kind of makes you reconsider your ideas about, you know, what, what we regard as inauspicious, okay, and what we regard as, um, you know, evil or as, as something to be, you know, avoided at all costs or vanquished or exorcised or gotten rid of. Um, not everything is... Um, the way it appears, the the kind of central reality there, when when you when you have deities that are taking away, okay, and their function, you know, I mean, they you know these are deities that can offer um, worldly wish fulfillment. At the same time, they represent um, on in another context, they represent sort of the that removal of things that keep you from seeing how things are, to keep that that make you delude yourself. And uh, that make you perhaps act in ways that you later regret. Um, you know, they they represent they they allow you to free yourself from that, so that you can act in a way that's that's completely in accordance with with who you are. Um, and, and I actually, what I'm saying is that doesn't mean that there aren't times when you shouldn't be angry, or aren't times when you shouldn't display this this kind of um, passion or whatever. That these things might not be appropriate at certain instances, but. By the same token, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, it, 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 again, it's, it's a force that you want to keep in balance. It's not something that you, um, 
you want to exclude, you want to see where it fits in. And these kinds of deities um, can, can force you to confront that. Um, and it's, you know, but I would say use those energies with care. Okay, so having said that, um, I'm just going to make a really brief plug here, and then I'm going to, um, you know, uh, call it a call it a podcast. Um, first of all, I just want to say um, thanks again to my patrons on Patreon. Um, I have a, I have a small but dedicated group right now, and if I, I actually would like it if if you enjoy the work that I do, um, I do a lot more than the podcast. I have, like I said, the Cathonia.net webpage uh, has been completely redone this summer. Um, I've added things. I have uh, a new book publishing company called Cathonia Books. Really, it's an imprint um, of the uh, Ingram distributor. Um, but and, and the first book out is called Maeve, which is spelled M-E-D-B. Um, it's an Irish name, of course. And some people said, why did you have to pick the hardest spelling of the name? I'm like, yeah, but it's the only one that comes up on Amazon <laughs> underneath, that, underneath that title. So uh, there are some advantages. But that was the name. Uh, so I have I have that novella that's come out. I am finishing up one on the Morrigan. Um, I, I originally had had a whole outline on Cathonia.net, but I've taken a lot of it down because in the last few weeks um, I've had a complete revisioning of the whole project. So and uh, like I said, in this past week alone, I've written fifty-one thousand words. So I'm I'm really trucking along on this, um, and I'm hoping that. I will have a reasonably good version, um, certainly by August, and I'm hoping by this fall that that will be the next release of Cathonia Books. But Cathonia Books also, I am also taking submissions from other people. I've kind of done a soft launch launch of it for this summer because I've also been um, increasing my Reiki practice, um, increasing my tarot practice. I probably do owe people another liminal tarot video. I just haven't, um, you know, I've had all kinds of tech problems this summer too. That's another, another issue. Even without Mercury retrograde, I've had a lot of tech issues. So, um, you know, so I'm, I'm still, um, fumbling my way through those, I guess you might say. But, um, but there's a lot going on. So if you want to support me on Patreon, I'd be most grateful. Um, if not, just at least like what, you know, what I'm doing on social media, um, check it out, share it with your friends if you like it. Um, and hopefully, um, you know, we'll have, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be seeing more of you, you know, please subscribe to the YouTube channel or to the podcast. If you, if you really like this podcast and I want to say thanks, I've had a, I've been, had a pretty big influx in subscribers, um, in the last couple of months. So I want to say thank you to all of you as well. And, um, with that, um, I think uh, I think I'll end on that note, and you know, hope to see you all again, or you know, I hope hope you all will tune in again in the near future, and um, be well. <laughs>